0: From Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit TrinityGraceSA.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you will want to turn it to Matthew chapter 1. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things. In the sermon this morning, first, be listening for a story about a car repair, a car repair. Second, be listening for what the name Jesus means. What does the name Jesus mean? And third, on the way home, I want you to tell your parents what your biggest need is based on Matthew chapter 1. What is your biggest need? Well, this morning, the church around the world is reflecting and meditating on the coming of Jesus into this world And it's not an overstatement to say that approximately 2,000 years ago, there was a child who was born on the eastern side of the Mediterranean basin, and his birth completely changed everything. We believe that child who was born to a virgin named Mary is the second person of the Trinity, God himself who took on flesh in order to come and live in our midst. And it was an incredible, magnificent visitation. God coming to be with His people, the Creator visiting His creation, a king taking the form of a baby. And many of you will know that the birth narrative is found in two of our gospel accounts, specifically the gospel account of Matthew and Luke. The story of Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel is seen really through the eyes of Joseph. And in Luke's gospel account, we see it through the eyes of Mary. And the central fact, though, is the same. But instead of Luke's picture of an excited Galilean girl learning that she's going to give birth to God's Messiah, Matthew comes and shows us the more sober Joseph, discovering that his fiancé is pregnant. Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, where we're going to see that this coming of Jesus is what we needed most, even though we don't always recognize it. We're a group of people who often have plans for Jesus, a group of people who think that we know what the agenda of Jesus should be. We're a group of people who think we know best, but what we see in the passage we're about to read this morning is that God's agenda is way better than ours. It's God who knows what we most need, and He goes to great lengths to provide for our deepest needs see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, as you know, this is God's Word, and He gives it to us because He loves us and wants us to know Him. Well, it's not unusual for us to misdiagnose issues in our lives, is it? You've likely experienced this in your own life, especially when you have so much information at your fingertips. These days, if you're experiencing a medical issue or have a financial question or need legal advice or want to figure out what's wrong mechanically with your car, you can simply go to the internet. You can diagnose and fix lots of things with YouTube these days. I experienced this just last month. Our family van was having a hard time starting Seemed to be a classic battery issue. So I took the battery to AutoZone. They tested the battery free of charge, as they do. And what they found was that the battery was still good. And that really drove me nuts. And it led me to um, go back and uh, uh, put the battery in my car. My car still wasn't running well, so I took it back to AutoZone. They ran another test, and they concluded that I had a bad alternator. They said, the battery is bad, Uh, the battery's good, but you have a bad alternator. Well, I enjoy working with my hands and it always feels good to save a few dollars, so I decided to fix the alternator myself. Purchased the part and then I began watching YouTube videos to figure out how to remove the old alternator and to install the new one. What I didn't know, though, is that our model van doesn't make an alternator exchange very easy. Some cars do, ours is not. I had to remove a number of critical parts just to get to the alternator. And when I finally got access to the alternator, I didn't have the right tools to complete the job, which was where a good Samaritan who may or may not be sitting here this morning, who may or may not be named Aaron Gill, came to the rescue. He happened to be at my house that afternoon and he had a few free hours of time on his hands. And so he helped me. And so at the end of the day, after it took two full days for me to get the alternator exchanged, I'm excited that it's finally done. I've saved some money. I close the hood. I grab the keys. I get in the driver's seat. I turn the key and nothing happens. So I jump the car, which gets it started again, drive it to AutoZone. They test the battery again and find out it was just a bad battery all along. It was a massive misdiagnosis. What should have been a simple 10-minute fix turned out to be a multi-day ordeal because my problem was misdiagnosed. It was not fun and I felt foolish afterwards. Misdiagnosing a problem. While frustrating, it normally isn't that big a deal. Like the issue with my car, normally it's frustrating and we learn a lesson and we kind of move on. We forget about it. But there are some things that can be misdiagnosed, and it is a much bigger mistake. It might even be really critical to get the diagnosis right. Well, the passage that we just read this morning that highlights God's work on the very first Christmas morning is about diagnosing a problem in many ways. God knew that mankind had a huge problem. One they couldn't really put their finger on all the time. One they couldn't fix by themselves. So God takes matters into his own hands in order to properly diagnose, you might say. The problem we have, which is implied in our passage, is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. You might call it a heart problem. It's a problem with sin. And God has to do some pretty miraculous things to fix the problem that we all experience. Look, you and I are prone to focus on what we need. We're prone to focus on how we can fix ourselves from the outside in oftentimes. We fail to see that our problem goes much deeper than we think, much deeper than just surface-level fixes. We think we know what will truly make us happy oftentimes. We think we know what's going to satisfy us. We tend to think we know what our problem really is. We're prone to misdiagnosis. And in turn, we search for solutions that won't really go deep enough to bring a fix. We think things like, if I could only have just a little bit more money or a thinner body or that person's acceptance or a better job or more obedient kids or the right person in Washington, then I'd be happy. And as we do this, we could say that what we're doing is looking for these things, these external things, to save us. Now, we'd never phrase it that way, but we're looking to these things to bring wholeness and restoration to our lives. But what we see from our passage and what we're reminded of at Christmas is that our primary problem goes much deeper than money or body type or better job or political victories. We need to change the very thing our heart wants most. It's a deeper issue. What we see from our passage is that we need a Savior who doesn't come to make life easier or to put us on a path of success or to meet all of our felt needs or to follow our agenda. No, we need a Savior who comes to save us from our sin. We need a God who is willing to dwell in our midst, right in the midst of all of our sin and all of the world's sin. The good news we see from our passage is that God does extraordinary things to meet our needs. And as we survey this familiar story, it likely goes without saying that Mary's pregnancy would have been humiliating to Joseph. He was likely confused and angry when he found out that Mary was pregnant. After all, the characters on the pages of the New Testament, they were not simpletons. They knew where babies came from. Joseph was angry at God's work, in a sense, which he didn't immediately recognize as God's work in his life. And that truth alone has enough application points to keep us busy this morning, but we can't stop there. Why begin the gospel on such a scandalous note? That's a question we could ask. I mean, the first chapter of Matthew is full of scandal if you step back and think about it. You see it in the genealogy of Jesus. There were a handful of suspect people mentioned. Relatives of this Savior. Couldn't Matthew have just left them out for propriety's sake? And now we have this pregnancy out of wedlock, immediately following the suspect genealogy. It's a reminder that God's work is always done in the midst of sin and with sinners. It's all God has to work with. Well, in the midst of the scandal, Joseph had a decision to make. Betrothal was as binding as marriage and required divorce, dissolve. So Joseph was moving in that direction until he received a visit from an angel. And the angel says, "'Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins.'" And after hearing from this angel, Joseph followed the Lord's new leading and he named his boy Jesus. And now the name Jesus, it was a popular boy's name in that day and age. You likely know this. It was the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, which literally means God saves. His name signifies the work that he came to do. Jesus came to save people from their sin. God in the flesh, saving. God saves. The incarnation of Jesus, it confronts us with both the problem and the solution. With both the gravity of our sin and the extent of God's lavish grace. We need saving from our sin and God is happy to do the saving. In Him, we are brought out of darkness into light, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. We are saved. But this isn't what the Jewish people in the first century thought they needed most. I'd love for us to think about that for a few seconds. The Jewish people in the first century, I mean, all of Jewish history, they're under oppression. Egypt, Babylon, now Rome. And they were looking for a Messiah to do something completely different than what he actually came to do. You might remember that the Jewish people were living under Roman oppression and a Messiah that didn't come to take care of that external problem would have been seen as a weak Messiah. I like how one commentator, Frederick Bruner, puts it when he says this in the quotes at the beginning of your bulletin. I'm just going to use portions of it. He says, A Messiah who came now and did not at least deliver the people politically from their enemies and from their enemy sins could hardly be considered a serious or full-blooded Messiah. A liberator who came only to save from sins and not also from sinners seemed piddly. A Messiah who did not save his people politically and economically must have struck a serious Jew as excessively spiritual. But Jesus' work in this gospel is first of all to liberate his people from their own evils. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew's Jesus will not rivet his people's attention on an external enemy as most radical movements do, nor will he forge a burning hatred for enemies by which to ignite a revolution. Jesus concentrates the fire of almost his entire gospel on his church's sins. Jesus' first call, his first mission is to save his people from their sin, to liberate his people from their own evil. Jesus did not come primarily for an external enemy. Jesus comes and forces the light to shine on you and on me. The focus is on his people's sins. It's the very need that brought him to take on flesh. The problem we often have is that it's easy to demonize external enemies. It's a lot harder to identify, to turn inward and look at the evil inside of myself and ask for cleansing. Look, if we were capable of saving ourselves, there'd be no need for a Messiah. And Jesus would not have needed to come. Jesus came to live among us, to rescue us, to bring us back home to God. And this means we can't put our trust in Jesus and still hold on to the illusion that we are righteous. So what does this mean for us today? as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Well, at least one thing it invites us to is a renewed focus on our own sin. To properly diagnose our problems. So that we might joyfully welcome the solution personally. My sin, your sin, it's why Jesus had to come. Our particular sin is what necessitated Christ's incarnation. The birth of Jesus is God's way of clearly defining for us what we all desperately need, and that's redeeming love. Therefore, we can't truly celebrate Christmas without admitting the depth of our need and the height of God's mercy. Jesus' birth offers the only hope for our most tragic problem, which is internal. The good news for us this Christmas morning is that God is present. He's with His people. He doesn't intervene from a distance. He's always active, sometimes in the most unexpected way, as Joseph shows us. And God's actions are aimed at rescuing people from a helpless plight, aimed at meeting their deepest needs. Forgiveness, it's always our biggest need. It's the thing that costs Jesus everything. And it's the thing that has the ability to change our lives, to bring us ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. It's why Jesus was born, and it's why we celebrate his birth this morning.